And we turn once again this week to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 7, and we're reading from the first verse. Chapter 6, we have what's termed the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus giving the basics of life in his kingdom for his disciples. And so we pick up the uh, record in chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Life inevitably brings its challenges and its hard times. And the Savior warned us that that would be the case. We are never promised that just because we are Christians, life will be easy and free from trouble. And we all know that that certainly isn't the case. And among the many trials that people have to face, Christians included, are that the hardships caused both 
by sickness and by death. Those will come to all of us in different forms. They cannot ultimately be escaped, no matter how medicine progresses. Uh, Ultimately, we might say it always ends in failure. And of course, often uh, sickness and death are bound up together, uh, and the trials that come upon people from both uh, can be very hard to bear. And we're not spared the trials because of our Christian faith. And that can bring many burdens to people, burdens uh, that the sufferer may bear, burdens that carers may bear. Sometimes those might even seem to be heavier. There are struggles. There are questions that arise. Think of how often in the Psalms, the the cry from the psalmist in in trouble and sickness, why, Lord, and how long, Lord, if you find yourself asking questions like that. And sent to such a world with hardships and sickness and death that the Lord Jesus Christ came and exercises his messianic ministry. And so we move on uh, today to consider Luke 7 and verses 1 to 17, the passage we've just read, issues of life and death. Issues of life and death. And two episodes that will take us uh, to the very heart of who Jesus is and what kind of ministry he has come to exercise. Issues of life and death. We think first in looking uh, at this portion of healing the sick. Healing the sick. Jesus has concluded the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. And we're told at the beginning of chapter 7, he entered Capernaum. In his home uh, area up uh, in Galilee. Uh, And here... Uh, we have a record of a remarkable incident. We read in verse 2 about a centurion's servant, and we're told he was sick and about to die. So the the centurion, of course, is a Roman soldier. Uh, He is a Gentile. He is one imposing the authority of the occupying power, the Roman Empire, And yet this is no ordinary centurion. This indeed is a very unusual man. He had his position in the Roman army as a centurion. He was something maybe roughly comparable to a sergeant in modern day armies. But it's his heart that is different. And this man stands apart from virtually all of his colleagues in the army. And there's several things we notice about the centurion, according to Luke's record here. First of all, there's the compassion that he had for his servant. Compassion. Uh, Servant in the translations, but the word really is slave. Uh, Rid our minds of any thoughts of servants in more modern times. He's a slave. And slaves under Roman law virtually were a piece of property. There were very, very few restrictions 
on what a slave owner could do with his slave. Just like any other uh, piece of property that a man owned, a slave was just like that. Uh, Life and death really were in the hands of the slave owner. Master could treat him virtually as he willed. But then you look at the account Luke has provided and we're told his master valued him highly. He may be a slave, but the master has a high regard for this man. And of course, some slaves could be very educated. They could be literate uh, when the master wasn't. And so here, high regard for the slave. And it does reveal, doesn't it, something of the centurion's heart. It tells us something significant about the kind of man that he was. Indeed, he puts enough value on the slave to go really to considerable lengths to contact Jesus in order to heal the slave. You see, by and large, in that culture, if a slave were ill, the master could simply say, well, if he dies, he'll get another one. It was like replacing light bulbs. It wasn't much different for most slave owners. One's dead, get another one. But not in this case. Significant effort to get the help of Jesus to heal the slave. Indeed, we're told in verse 3, he sent some elders of the Jews. So he's making a considerable effort to get the help that he believes the slave needs. So that's the first thing that stands out, isn't it? Compassion. Compassion he had for the servant, for the slave. The second thing that we see about him, and again, this is very distinctive, is the respect he enjoyed among the Jews. Respect. And that would be very unusual. The centurion is a soldier of the occupying power. And you can imagine uh, the the attitude towards occupying soldiers that would characterize the Jews. And you could apply it in all kinds of other situations throughout history. Here's an occupier. Here's an enemy. Here is one that many of your compatriots would happily have killed. But this is a man, we are told, who was highly regarded among the Jews. They see the difference in his attitude, how he views them, how he treats them. And we're told uh, that the Jews pleaded earnestly with Jesus. Uh, Again, this matters to them. They have a high regard for the centurion. They want Jesus to help him. Uh, And their opinion is striking, isn't it? We have it in verse uh, Four, he deserves that you do this for him. He deserves it. Remarkable. Most of the Jews would have said of most of the Roman soldiers, he deserves to die and probably slowly and painfully for preference. But here they're saying he deserves to have you heal his slave. And the reason stands out again, remarkable. He loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Probably the man was unique 
in doing that. Well, most of the Romans would have despised the Jews. Deep-seated anti-Semitism that, of course, has not gone away in our modern day. And had built their synagogue. Very generous. Very different from what the world would have expected, from what other Jews would have expected of a Roman soldier. It's possible, we're not told, but it's possible that this Roman, this Gentile centurion, was what would be called in biblical times a God-fearer. That was a distinct category of person. It's not a word for just a general good-living sort of person, a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a Gentile who would attend worship in the synagogue, he would not have embraced Judaism fully and observe all the laws and the regulations, but he would worship in synagogue. He would pray to the God of Israel. And it may be that this man was a God-fearer who actually attended synagogue. If not, in a way, it's all the more remarkable that he built the synagogue for the Jewish community. So his compassion for his slave. There's respect that he enjoyed among the Jews. Then, and this of course is crucial, there's the faith he expressed. Faith he expressed. The first two, the compassion and the respect, are remarkable, but that would not necessarily have indicated any particular spiritual commitment. But the faith he expressed. Verse 3, he heard of Jesus. And this is much more than curiosity. Plenty of people were curious about Jesus. And they might tag along in the hope that they would see a miracle. Plenty in the crowds following Jesus had that outlook. They just wanted to see something remarkable. This was the talk of the town. But there's something profound in this man's outlook. And verse 6 is significant. Through the friends who come, he says, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. There is no thought in his mind of deserving help from Jesus. And it's more than just humility. You could put it down, he's a humble man, unassuming, but it's more than that. And that is clear in the record. It's interesting, in Matthew 8, the parallel account, it seems that eventually the centurion came himself. It does appear that finally there was a face-to-face meeting of Jesus and the centurion, although Luke doesn't mention it. Verse 7 How important that is. Say the word and my servant will be healed. There were many among the Jews who couldn't have said that, who wouldn't have believed that. But this centurion does. And it's Jesus' evaluation that is vital. See, we might draw our conclusions about the man from what he says and what we see, and we might be wrong. But Jesus most certainly is not wrong. I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Verse 9. 
And there's the Lord's testimony to the spiritual condition of this Roman soldier. I have not found such great faith. And it's evident this is more than the transitory faith, if we call it that, that that many people had in Israel. Many followed Jesus for a while and, and believed at a certain level, but when things got difficult or the teaching was too hard, they just walked away. This Gentile is different. Not just a belief that Jesus could do a miracle. There were others who believed that Jesus could do it, even if they weren't terribly sure maybe how he did his miracles. There's something deeper at work here. A centurion realizes his own unworthiness. Verse 7, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. You see how different that is from the Jews' comment that he is worthy. He deserves this. The centurion says, I I don't deserve you come to my house, that you do anything other than what I'm pleading with you to do to heal my slave. Profound sense of unworthiness. And here surely is a man who's trusting entirely on Jesus. And of course, the Lord knows his heart. The Lord isn't fooled by outward appearances or by fine words. Jesus knows the heart. And he responds as is needed. So here's a man of compassion. He's a man who had respect from the Jewish community, but crucially, a man of God-given faith. And the center of this record, of course, isn't the centurion. We've spoken about him. We have seen what was so unusual about him. But the center of the record, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see clearly once again in this record Jesus' authority as he heals. When it is his sovereign will to heal, then he is able to heal any disease, any condition. There is no obstacle. He is never under obligation to heal. There were occasions when he didn't. But here he does. And he heals at a distance. When the centurion says, but say the word, verse 7, that was fulfilled exactly. Jesus didn't come to his house and didn't need to, and he spoke the word. And when the friends went back, the slave is healed. The Messiah again is demonstrating his identity. We need to recognize the significance again of this miracle. It tells us who Jesus is. It identifies him as the Messiah. He exercises authority. The healings are pointers to who he is. In the very next passage that God willing we look at next week, when John the Baptist is having his doubts in prison, Jesus responds by the same method, points to the works. The miracles identify him as the Messiah. And they demonstrate his authority. And what has this Messiah come to do? 
Well, above all, he has come to transform lives. Not just to heal the body, because the slave will become sick again. And even when he raised the dead like Lazarus, Lazarus would die again. He's not simply come to heal the body and transform life on earth. But those healings of the body were signs that he's able to transform life, to transform sinners, above all by removing our sin and granting us new life in God's kingdom. And it's that new life that Messiah gives. Yes, I'm sure it was a wonderful thing to have a disease healed by Jesus. But far more wonderful, far more glorious was to have your life transformed by the Messiah in his grace and his power to give you new life. And isn't that what Jesus says in John 10 and verse 10? I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And of course, to have that life, we need to be looking to Jesus in faith. The centurion had faith. Perhaps the results were even greater than he'd anticipated. But he trusted Jesus. And he received a new life. The servant was healed. Wonderful, I'm sure. Both were grateful. But the centurion and Jesus' testimony was a man of faith, great faith, the faith that saves, healing the sick. But then the second account we read in these verses deals with raising the dead. Raising the dead. Jesus has dealt with sickness. He has demonstrated his messianic authority. He just speaks the word and disease is healed. There had already been many examples of his healing in his ministry thus far in Luke's record. But here again was a testimony. The Messiah has come. He changes lives. Having dealt with sickness, now the Lord Jesus confronts Death here is a bigger challenge. He's dealt with illness of whatever kind it was, but what about death? And really it is the case, if your religion, if your belief system has nothing to say in the face of death, at the side of a grave, your faith isn't worth that. And so Jesus confronts death, the ultimate challenge to any belief, any religion, any worldview. What does it have to say when it faces death? And he comes face to face with a tragedy as he enters the city of Nain, a dead person, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And here's a broken-hearted woman. And here is a, a man, a young man, beyond the reach of human help. What is Jesus going to do? And there are several vital things we see in this short record. First of all, there's a fallen world. 
And just the whole scene tells us that and reminds us of it. Why is there illness? Why is there suffering? Why is there death? What's wrong? That's one of the crucial questions that any belief system has to answer. What's wrong with the world? Because nobody in his senses can say the world is fine the way it is. Of course it isn't. What is wrong with the world? And why is there sickness? Why is there death? A vital part of the answer we have in Romans 5. There in verse 12 we read, Sin entered the world by one man, and death through sin. In other words, we live in a fallen world, fallen from the perfection in which God created it. It is not as it was made to be. The whole material creation is marred by the presence of sin. Sin is an intruder in God's good world, and so death also is an intruder in God's world. Death has no right to be here. It shouldn't be here. It's a contradiction of how God made this world to be. Death is an intruder. The Bible describes it as the last enemy, and it is. Yes, there are times when death does bring relief from pain. We know that. But ultimately, it's an intruder, and we should hate death. It's no right to be here. A fallen world. The intruder is at work bringing pain, bringing hardship, bringing broken hearts, bringing death itself. God's sentence in Genesis 3.19, you're dust, and to dust you will return. We will return to the dust unless the Lord comes back first. We need to reckon with that. And of course, with death comes sorrow and many different evils. And so at Nain, Jesus confronts the work of sin, a fallen world. But then we see, secondly, a compassionate Messiah. And just the whole account, brief as it is, tells us of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a vivid expression in verse 13. As the NIV translates it, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. It's the word that's used in other places in the Gospels for Jesus had compassion on people. Before the feeding of the 5,000, for example, he had compassion on them. And it's a very vivid, physical, visceral word. It's the, the sensation in your gut. When you're moved with emotion, you feel it in your body. And Jesus felt it in his body. He looked, he saw the ravages of sin in the creation, and it moved him physically. He's filled with compassion. In the depths of his being, he is moved. And yes, it's human compassion, as we might feel it, but surely also we see divine compassion. It's the heart of God that's demonstrated here in the Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of God responding to sin 
and its effects in his creation. So we're reminded in James 5.11, for example, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And we see it here, don't we? We see a compassionate Messiah. No conflict with his holiness as he feels this deep compassion for the woman, for the one who has died. Concerned both for the widow and for his son, her son, surely. And you notice that takes precedence over ritual cleanliness. You might not notice it at first, but we're told Jesus touched the, the beer. Now, the ESV, for some reason, has coffin. It wasn't. Uh, it, it would be a stretcher and the body wrapped and set on it. But Jesus touched the beer. And so for the rest of that day, he was unclean. He wouldn't have been able to go to synagogue, for example. But that doesn't matter in comparison to showing compassion to the woman and her son. He was willing to contract ritual impurity. That doesn't deflect him at all from showing compassion. And after the miracle, just a fascinating phrase that Luke includes, he gave him back to his mother. And just the compassion, the gentleness, the love for this woman who'd been in agony, he gave the son back. You can't imagine the emotions that there must have been when he did that. But there's the compassion of the Messiah. A fallen world, a compassionate Messiah, and thirdly, a mighty Lord. A mighty Lord. Compassion on its own isn't enough. Aren't there times when when our hearts go out to people who, who are suffering and we long to do something to help them and maybe there's nothing we can do? Sometimes all we can do is be there. But Jesus is not filled with compassion but can't do anything about it. He is the mighty Lord. And again, you see his authority. We've seen his authority in healing the centurion's slave. And now we see his authority in raising the dead. He gives back life where there has been death. And of course, it's a work beyond the power of any mere man. And the healing, the the raising of the dead is a victory, and it's an overwhelming victory. And the record makes that clear. You notice Luke includes the fact when the man is brought back to life, he sits up and he began to talk. What's the point of mentioning that? It's emphasizing this is a thorough return to life. He can talk, he can communicate, he's back. It's not just some odd physiological quirk or something that has happened that the body moved and the muscles were tense, something like that, who you would know, but he sits up and he talks. He's back. He's restored to life. There is no doubt about it. And Jesus did what 
On the face of it seemed utterly futile. He spoke to the dead man. I say to you, get up. And to all appearances, it's a a foolish thing to, to tell a dead man to get up. He can't do it. But he does. Because Jesus' word comes with the power necessary for the man to obey. Just as happens in the record of raising Lazarus. Jesus stands at the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And it's foolish in human terms. Lazarus can't do it. But the Lord's word comes with power and gives life. And the man is able to sit up and talk in an instant. As Lazarus was able to come out from the tomb. The word of the Messiah, the word of the Lord, brings about fulfillment. He doesn't simply speak and hope something happens. He spoke and the slave was healed. He speaks and the man sits up on the bier and talks and has returned to his mother. The word of the Lord brings fulfillment. We see that from Genesis 1 on. The Lord spoke and it was done. And the Lord here speaks. Sit up. And it's done. Power of the Lord is at work. And it is very significant. Verse 13. When the Lord Maybe he didn't notice that. But that is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is referred to as the Lord. Others speak to him as Lord, the centurion, and so forth. It's a term of respect, maybe not any more than that, but the Lord. It is the divine name. The Lord of the Old Testament, the covenant God, a divine title. People say God has visited his people, verse 16. No, he has. And in a far greater way than those people watching realize. It's not simply that the Lord up in heaven has enabled Jesus to do something. The Lord is standing there in the person of Jesus. And is doing mighty works. And is giving life. And transforming people. The Lord has come. By his death and his resurrection. This very Lord. Will defeat sin. And death. That's a consequence of sin. And will provide salvation in all its fullness. Salvation for the soul. Salvation for the body. A complete transformation. The mighty Lord has come. He was able to give life to this young man. Transform the life of his mother from tragedy to delight. And this mighty Lord is able to transform you and me. From dead sinners to living children of God. 
the prospect before us of eternal life. We see the power and the authority of the Messiah in healing the sick. He spoke the word, the servants restored. And in raising the dead, he spoke the word, and the young man sits up. And this is the Lord we need to transform us and to give us life, to heal us from the ravages of sin and all the damage that it does to us. It's all there in Christ. If you haven't put your trust in him thus far, don't put it off and do not delay. The Lord's giving you here now another opportunity to trust in Christ and receive new life and salvation. May we experience the transformation, not simply a return from physical death to physical life, but a return from eternal death to eternal life.